0: There are some leaders I want to have on Fort Knox every year. Andy Jassy is one of them. Jassy is the CEO of Amazon Web Services, the leading cloud platform, and I sat down with him again this year at the AWS reInvent Conference in Las Vegas this week. Welcome to Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. I'm John Fort from CNBC. Jassy and I talk about new features, government contracts, Amazon's move into chip design, and the feud with Oracle's Larry Ellison, among other topics. Here's Andy Jassy. Andy, we're back in Vegas, Amazon reInvent. You've got a lot of news this year. One of the things that jumped out at me was um, ARM-based chips and uh, developed in-house from the Annapurna acquisition. Uh, Tell me what your vision is for that, starting with uh, what these chips are enabling now as far as the the cost savings that customers are going to get. Well, you know, we have, a, as you can imagine, given the
1: size of our business, we have a very close partnership with Intel on the x86 processors that we use. But we we have a lot of workloads where customers running these generalized workloads like um, web apps and scale-out apps, they want to run them, but they don't need quite the same specs as what you get in some of those Intel chips. And so we have been, like a number of folks, um, looking at how we can um, help incorporate ARM chips Into our offerings and our EC2 compute offerings, and we have this team that you mentioned in that we acquired in Israel that has built a number of chips for us that have initially been focused on making the network performance of our EC2 service um, even better than it was before. But we went about spinning up a team there to see if we could build a chip based on the ARM architecture that would take general workloads, that are scale-out workloads, and let people save up to forty-five percent from uh the instances they use today. And Mm -hmm. and that's what that A one instance family is. And we expect over time that we will have instances that use lots of different processors. We will for you know forever use Intel processors, but you saw probably uh, you know forever is a long time, but (laughs) I would say for the foreseeable future. And uh you probably saw a few weeks ago that we announced that we are uh launching instance families with AMD's Epic processors, mm-hmm. and, and now you see ARM processors in instance families, and we expect there'll be a lot of different processors and the, the diversity of
0: uh, offerings we offer customers. How long before 10% or more of uh, the workload is handled by ARM processors. Do you think?
1: I don't know. I mean, I, I think that ARM processors will have a very meaningful segment share of the instances that customers use over time because they're so cost-effective. But there are so many things that will change over time, including, you know, it's a lot of new product development every couple years to build processors, and who ends up building the processors that are most price and cost performance? Uh, you know, it's it's always a combination for customers of what the capabilities of the, of the processor is mm-hmm. and then what they have to pay for it. And then price performance is what they measure. And so we expect there'll be a lot of competition and we expect that there'll be good distribution across
0: uh, the Intel processors, AMD and ARM. Thematically, what would you point to as the big shifts this year? You're talking a lot about machine learning last year. You're continuing to talk about that here, just giving developers Um, More of a playground, more of an area uh, to learn how it can work for them and their businesses. What's different this year? What are you building on um, that, that you're giving developers and customers access to? Well, machine learning is an area that everybody's so excited about,
1: and there's a lot of conversation about it. And uh, if you look in the last year, the amount of progress that companies are making using machine learning is, is pretty staggering. I mean, tens of thousands of customers are running machine learning on top of AWS. If, you know, twice as many customer references you'll find running it here than, than anywhere else. Um, and yet, it's still early days for most large companies. And we uh, are really focused at all three layers of the machine learning stack. At that bottom layer, for expert machine learning practitioners, the infrastructure that they want to run models on, we're investing a lot in. So you'll see, for instance, we have these P3DN instances we just launched that have 100 gigabit per second networking that are the most powerful instances for machine learning out there and you know if you look at, at when you're doing machine learning there's training models mm-hmm. and then there's the predictions or the inference most people focused on the training but the inference is where almost all the cost is which are the predictions and so we have a number of offerings there um, to make it more efficient for people to do uh, uh, inference, something called elastic inference, where you don't waste as much of the GPU, which is expensive. And then we have a new processor that, that Annapurna team built called Inferentia, which is really a game changer for inference. It's going to make it much more cost effective and much more efficient and speedy for people to do inference. So, So what's a real world application that you see for that? Well, you know, take, you, you can imagine any type of thing you do, uh, machine learning, but t- take Alexa itself. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if you think about Alexa, um, which is in all our echo devices and the, and, and the like, um, people, you know, probably a few times a week we train that model. And they're big, beefy models that take us time training, but it's a small fraction of, uh, in comparison to, Every minute, how many predictions or answers that Alexa is giving people that they're asking. And so, inference is actually 90% of the cost for us. And so, they need, when they're actually doing inferences, when they're taking a question and um, trying to do the natural language understanding of that question and do the automatic speech recognition for an answer, those are all, um, they're, they're all actually exercising that model, making predictions. So, if they have a model, if they have a chip for inference, that actually speeds up being able to process all those, um, all the nodes in the natural language understanding and being able to give answers much more quickly and much more cost effectively, it can significantly change not just the performance but the cost of doing inference.
0: Hmm. You you mentioned all the things that you're doing with chips. What's your big picture goal there with Annapurna? Because my understanding is they're, they're working on not just chips for AWS, but also that are being used in devices, right? That are across Amazon's uh, whole uh, kind of category of, of of different things that that the company is doing. What is the the kind of mission of custom chips within AWS?
1: Well, the the Anapurna team is building chips that are being used in lots of different devices across Amazon. Though they primarily are focused on building processors and chips that are used in AWS services and. Our goal, you know, at our scale now in AWS, which is pretty large, we have pretty unique needs and we've learned a lot from how much customer usage we have of lots of different use cases on where uh, a, a custom processor or chip that we can build and design might have a disproportionate cost and performance impact for our customers. So we design processors or chips that we think make a big difference in performance. So there were some things that we thought we could offload in our EC2 networking that would allow the throughput to be much faster. So Annapurna built processors that did that. And we had, um, as I mentioned earlier, we had been experimenting with ARM for a long time but hadn't really built a chip that could have a meaningful impact on generalized workloads, and that's what Annapurna did. And, You know, and then, as we mentioned, inference today has really, largely been ignored relative to training, but inference is where all the cost is, and we have the opportunity to make that much more efficient and cost effective. And so where we find opportunities to design chips where there isn't something out there that meets our needs and is customized for our needs and is cost effective for us at the scale that we're at, then we'll go design and build ourselves.
0: Another big tech company had a a conference uh, last month, uh, Oracle, they like to talk about the cloud as well. Um, and uh, Larry Ellison uh, kind of took aim at, at Amazon at, at a couple of points during the Open World Conference. Uh, first off, I mean, he said he doesn't think that Amazon can quit Oracle, can move off of Oracle. Uh, I, I suspect you would beg to differ. How, how long do you think before you guys move off of Oracle entirely?
1: Well, uh, you know, it's pretty soon. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I think just in general, what I would say is that. Um, Anybody who has spent time looking at the cloud or is using the cloud takes those comments with a grain of salt. And uh, sometimes facts are useful because facts are still a good thing. And (laughs) if you look at the facts, by the end of 2018, 88% of the databases at Amazon that were running Oracle will be off of Oracle and running Amazon DynamoDB or Amazon Aurora and ninety-seven percent of the mission-critical databases will be off of Oracle and run on on DynamoDB and Aurora. And then on November 1st, we turned off our Oracle data warehouse and moved it to Redshift. So, um, we're virtually done moving away from Oracle on the database side, and I think by the end of 2019 or mid-2019, we'll be done. Wow.
0: So, that soon, before next year is done, you'll be off Oracle?
1: That's our plan on the database side.
0: All right. Uh, Now, uh, he, he went on to uh, say some things uh, about Amazon's security, um, specifically uh, how customer data is stored. What What's your uh, response to um, questions about the architecture of Amazon's cloud and how secure customer data is versus being mingled with others?
1: Yeah, I, again, I, <laughs> what I would say is, I think for those who know a little bit about the cloud, I don't think they paid much attention to that. But if you look at security in general, um, I don't think that you'll find a more secure architecture in the cloud or on-premises than what you find in AWS. And you know, in the first probably six or seven years of operating in the cloud, I would say that security was probably the single biggest enterprise blocker uh, for growth in AWS. Not necessarily because there was any security issue, but because the model was different. And you know we would talk to people, and, and they would say, well, I'm worried about security. And we'd say, well, what are you worried about? And they would say, well, I'm worried I'm going to lose control of my data. And then we would say, well, you know you get to choose where you put the data. and It doesn't move unless you move it, and if you're extra concerned, you can encrypt it in motion or rest. And then they'd say, well, I'm just worried that it's something different. And that's very natural when you're going through as big a medium shift as we are with the cloud. But Over the last four or five years, I would say the security has become one of the biggest sellers of the cloud and of AWS. And I think that most security professionals, when they look at both how AWS is architected and what their security posture looks like in AWS versus what their
0: uh, security posture looks like on premises, they feel more secure. Mm. Um, Your position on where the database is headed in the cloud, you would say is different from Oracle. you would argue that the the day of the one size fits all, um, do everything, relational database is done.
1: Yeah, I, I think that, I think that ship has sailed, and I think that if you you know twenty, if you look over the last twenty years where people were running relational databases for everything, it made sense with ERP or CRM or e-commerce applications where there were you know complicated ad hoc queries and joins, but. In those days, the applications tended to have gigabytes of data and occasionally terabytes. There are several things that have changed over the last few years. Um, people have recognized the value of data at the same time that the cost of compute and storage have come way down because of the cloud. And so these applications are now many terabytes, often petabytes of data. That is a different requirement. And so there are lots of workloads, like take, Lyft, is an example, so Lyft, the Uber competitor, yeah, the uh, uh, the sharing company which runs completely on AWS. They have millions of users, and then they have these GPS coordinates that track where the drivers and the passengers are. Those, that data is really simple, and that data can be captured in a key-value pair, and you know, with the the key being the users and the the value being the coordinates. Hmm. And um, we built a, a database in DynamoDB that is optimized. For making it single millisecond latency at very large scale for key-value pairs, that is a purpose-based, a a, a purpose-built database that solves that problem really well. Same thing, if you look at Fortnite, you know the game that if you have kids, um, you hear about Fortnite all the time. Uh They use that key-value pair DynamoDB database because it does that function really well. And you can same, you know, you have some apps that say I can't deal with single single millisecond. Uh, latency, I need microsecond latency. So if you take Airbnb, they have single sign-in across all their apps, and they want it to be microsecond. So they use an in-memory data store, or ElastiCache, or ElastiCache service. So there are different databases for different purposes. And the day of using one database to solve all the problems has gone, gone. You can do it in the same way that you can build a house with a hammer and fix up all your rooms with a hammer, but that's <laughs> not usually an advisable strategy. And the same thing is true in databases.
0: I like how you worked all those customers in there at the same time with your answers, right? Um, uh, about two months ago, I was in Orlando uh, with Microsoft, Adobe and SAP, and they were talking about this open data initiative, this idea that they think it should be easy for customers to take data from one cloud and mingle it with data from another cloud and figure out um, how to run their business based on data that they've got stored with a a number of different providers. Philosophically, what do you think of that idea?
1: Well I think over time, my suspicion is over time it'll be easier and easier to move data around, and people People we see all the time in our business that people will move data around from uh, from one place to another. Um, you know, it, the complexity of it though is is uh, not to be underrated. Uh, you know, it's the the platforms are in pretty wildly different stages. They mm-hmm. do pretty different things. There aren't equivalents for a lot of things. Um, you know, uh, uh, in the AWS and some of those other places. In the same way that there aren't equivalents for what SAP does in some other places. So. It's hard to do that, and then you also have to get the companies to cooperate well together, and that isn't so easy either. I mean, you look at um, you know, Oracle choosing to you know, overnight double the prices of software, uh, their software on AWS or, or Microsoft or Microsoft's customers who buy their own licenses and are able to use those licenses to run on Amazon's relational database service when well, Microsoft decides, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to try and get people to run on Microsoft. If you can't get the basics right on things like that, then when you're talking about much more complicated things, that gets harder. So we, we, we have some work to do to find a way to cooperate differently if we want to make that easier for people over time.
0: When I see something like that happen, I get the sense this is a way that challengers are trying to take on the leader, right? By arguing, hey, you don't want lock-in, maybe with Amazon, uh, you, you want to be able to move your data around, come over with us. Do you view that as, as perhaps where some of this is coming from? Is this open data idea something that you're going to try to become uh, uh, open to conversations about?
1: We're open to any conversation. And we, you, the array of topics and ideas that we either explore internally or we talk about with partners and customers is so broad. So we're open to any idea. But um, I do think you're right. I think often you hear a lot of this portability conversation from those that are trailing and trying to find ways to get more data into their platform.
0: Now, there are some questions I ask you every year, but I always got to ask because sometimes things change. Um, I like to ask you about spinning off AWS. Would it ever happen? Up till now, you said, no, 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 I guess, possibility of that on the horizon. You still feel that way? Yeah.
1: Well, what I, what I always say, just to, for the record, is <laughs> on that, the horizon, yeah, said, is that yeah. I'll never say never about anything. Okay. Uh, and there's been so many things in my life in general and and particularly at Amazon that I would have never predicted. But we don't have any plans on the horizon to spin off Amazon for all the reasons that we've talked about in the past, which is just usually um, companies will spin off groups if they just for some reason don't want them on their, in their books or if that new unit needs access to capital that it can't get by being part of the broader company. And in the case of Amazon where we're really comfortable being misunderstood for long periods of time. We're not concerned about uh, AWS's um being on the books and uh, you anyway, know and I think also AWS has been helpful the last few years too, unlike probably the first several years. <laughs> uh and I, I think also Amazon has been so just incredibly generous about funding AWS so aggressively over the 15 years that we've been working on this that there's really ne- been no need for additional capital. So we just don't see a huge reason to do so, so I don't see it on the horizon.
0: Last year, uh, the idea of HQ2, a second Amazon headquarters, was also relatively new. I was asking you about that and whether you plan to move out of Seattle to whatever city, turns out it was cities, uh, the new facility uh, ends up being in. It's been a year, so I imagine you have more developed thoughts on exactly how AWS will take advantage of these new locations in Long Island City and in uh, Northern Virginia. How do you expect to staff those areas? Will a significant portion, um, more than half of of AWS employees perhaps be based out there?
1: We're going to have a very big AWS presence in, in both the New York and Northern Virginia area and um, largely because we're growing so fast in in the AWS business. And and so I don't know what percentage of the total it'll be, but it'll be a large number um, uh, overall. And we're excited about it. We have pretty big teams today in AWS in Northern Virginia. A lot of our security team is out there, and a lot of our EC2 team is out there. Um, And we have networking folks out there. So we have a, a pretty good base from which to start in Virginia, and we have a lot of um, sales folks and some product development folks in New York as well. So, we expect, and one of the reasons we were excited about those cities is that they have an incredible amount of local talent, and, and it's also a place where a lot of people who are considering a move to work for a company are also excited about being. So, I would expect AWS to have a significant
0: presence. How much of it has to do with customer proximity? I mean, any enterprise company uh, is going to recognize that there are a lot of financial customers in New York. There's a big government customer uh, in the D.C. area. Um, How much of that plays into the advantage of being in those locations?
1: I think it's helpful. It's not the reason why, as a company, Amazon chose those locations. And, you know, I think in AWS, we have a really large field sales team and they're already located in all the places where customers are, so we already have a really big um, sales team in the New York area or a public sector sales team in the D.C. area. Um, so it's not the primary reason, but there's no question. I think one thing that's different about AWS for most technology companies is we spend an inordinate amount of time with customers, and having the product teams in close proximity to some of the customers and many of the customers that they're trying to build capabilities for
0: is incredibly useful. Mm. Talk to me about trade uh, while while we're talking about customers as well. There's a lot of tension between the US and, I mean, Canada, much less China right now. How does that affect um, the way you interact with customers, the way you you plan where Amazon uh, facilities and regions are going to be, where you're going to build out cloud data centers? Yeah. It it
1: doesn't really. Impact how we uh, relate to customers, or interact with customers, or choose our regions. But, you know, cust- we want to serve customers in every locale, and I think there are going to be these ups and downs over time with politics and, and you know geopolitical situations that we can't control, and there's some fluidity to it. But at the end of the day, what we care most about and what we prioritize is making sure that our customers in every part of the world are successful building their businesses on top of AWS, and in. With regard to where we put our infrastructure regions, which is you know really physical places in the world where we have multiple data centers, mm-hmm. those need to be where customers need them. And so if you look at um, a lot of big uh, customers who have low latency requirements for their workloads or who have data sovereignty requirements that so the data resides on local soil, you have to put regions in those areas if you want to be able to help those customers and you want to be able to earn that business.
0: And that's regardless of whatever's happening with trade or tariffs. One of the customers that you're talking about here this week that's made an all-in move with AWS is uh, Korean Air. What were the, the requirements that you guys needed to have in place to get a customer like that? Yeah. I imagine could have gone with a lot of different providers. Yeah,
1: and in fact, um, they had been for the last um, 20 years or so with one of the older guard providers and i think for them what they would tell you is it's a few things that um, that tilted it to partnering with aws first they want to innovate on their customer experience and you know they realize that Um, Actually, if you look in the airline space, the customer experience is actually evolving pretty rapidly. And they have a lot of ideas on how they want to change that customer experience, and AWS just has a lot more capability than anybody else by a large margin that will allow them to invent at a faster rate. And then, you know, I think that they wanted to be able to invent, but also in a cost-effective fashion, and they realized they could save a meaningful amount of money with AWS versus what they've been doing before. And then, I think also, when you're, when you when you're a company and you have an engineering team those engineers are often the scarce resource of that company and if you don't have to have them spending a lot of time managing the undifferentiated heavy lifting of that infrastructure instead you get you get the ability to put them on things that truly differentiate your mission your customer experience hmm. that's very advantageous and yeah you know, I think the other thing too is the other two things that they looked at were um, They want an ecosystem of partners, both on the consulting side, as well as on the ISV and software side, that they can help make that transition to the cloud, and there's no ecosystem of partners that's comparable to AWS. And then just the last thing is, if you're running mission critical systems like Korean Air uh, is going to run on top of AWS, you want to make sure that whatever infrastructure platform you're putting it on has great operational performance and security. Having done this a lot longer at several orders of magnitude
0: scale of the other providers, we just have a lot more maturity in our platform than elsewhere. And speaking of geopolitical tensions, there was a story uh, out of Bloomberg um, a couple months ago that you guys and Apple and some others pushed back against the idea yeah. that um, uh, Chinese spies had uh, placed chips uh, within hardware that were able to uh, spy on what was going on with, with customer data. Um, what kind of either uh, transparency, uh, new policies among companies might help uh, make it clearer what's really going on in terms of either security policy? I mean, setting aside that you asked for Bloomberg to, to issue a retraction on that story, and, and they haven't yet.
1: I don't, I don't think it's policies by the technology companies. Mm. I, you know, I think that, um, you know, first of all, the story is completely false as it relates to AWS. There's no fact to it. Um, and I think that at the end of the day, if you're going to make an accusation, you should have some proof. And we have not been able to see any proof. Um, the story that, that, that you know, the, the questions we got, we would answer, and then the questions would change, and then the facts would change, or the claims would change. And so and I think from our experience, um, you know, W- the, the notion that there was some, that we somehow discovered um, hidden chips on hardware, apart from it being false, I mean, show us where you where you actually can see that, so that we can actually react to it. But it just you know uh, there was no truth to the story, and I don't think it's a matter of the uh, technology industry providing more transparency. I think that if you're going to report something, you have to have some proof.
0: Mm. Um- Seattle uh, has grown enormously along with Amazon, and uh, lately in the past year, there's been a lot of, I think, conversation that's starting to bubble up about what happens to certain areas when uh, they become successful uh, with a technology company, whether it is Silicon Valley and the cost of living there, Seattle, you know, people are starting to wonder what happens in in Northern Virginia and in New York with, with Amazon expanding there. How has Amazon's leadership conversation shifted, if at all, as you've seen uh, the ways people are questioning how much benefit cities really get, states really get, um, for some of the incentives they give companies to move there?
1: Well, I think in general you're going to always have a lot of opinions um, in every city by the way and and and, you know whether it's seattle or some of the new cities we're going to but i think if you look at a lot of the facts i think the way that successful companies whether they're technology companies or other companies influence and impact cities it's it's very impressive i mean if you just it really brings up economies you know all of the Uh, When you have companies that are successful, it brings jobs, it brings other types of of, um, uh, jobs and and opportunities for people who work in, um, you know, restaurants or plumbers or electricians or contractors or builders. I mean, it it really, it changes what the prospects are for a lot of people when How much do you think about that?
0: Because some companies, Google, for example, has faced some criticism because they'll feed a lot of employees in-house and, you know, local restaurants in Mountain View don't necessarily like that and then aren't necessarily happy when Google says that they want to expand. D- d- does Amazon think about the broader local economic impact in, in we terms do, of those things? We do all the time.
1: I mean, you know, we, uh, we we don't, of course, serve food in-house. So I think the restaurants have really benefited by the um, really big growth in uh, of Amazon across uh, all of Seattle, but we we spend a lot of time thinking about the communities in which we live. You know, if you look, if you look just at Seattle as an example, um, you look at um, we took. 25,000 square feet of space in one of our buildings and and gave it to Fair Start, which is a local agency in Seattle that helps homeless people get trained for restaurant jobs so they can um, move out of homelessness. And um, they have kitchens and restaurants. So we gave 25,000 square feet um, to Fair Start or uh, in one of our buildings that we're just completing we're giving mary's place which is an organization that deals with homeless families in transition forty seven thousand square feet there are the many companies i know that commit that type of of uh, investment and space to their community and so we think about it in all the issues that in the communities in which we uh, interact and in. we we think about the local economy and we're, we're really proud of the jobs that we have created in seattle and and then a lot of these supporting industries like restaurants and um, and hairstylists and plumbers and electricians and builders and um, you know, but we also we're trying to help with some of the biggest problems we have in our country and in our communities. And mm-hmm. one of which is homelessness, which I talked about Fair Start and Mary's Place. Another yeah. is education. You know, I think in our country we have a pretty significant crisis in education right now. Crisis. Yeah, you know, I think it's a crisis. Okay. If you looked in, if you look at the uh, um, in developed countries. The U.S. ranks 35th out of 50 developed countries in education at this point. If we don't think that's going to impact our competitiveness and our prospects in the future for our kids and our kids' kids, we're kidding ourselves.
0: It seems like part of the issue is the stratification in education. Because I'll bet you if you were to take um, the well-to-do suburbs and the private schools, where you know a lot of uh, technology employees are, are probably sending their kids, and compare those more broadly It's not quite as stark as that 35th number. Um, To what extent is it important for uh, the country, companies included, to advocate for better resources or smarter deployment of resources to all rungs of society and education?
1: I think it's, you know, I think there are a lot of issues today in education. You know, I think you have. You know, you you for sure have uh, a difference in the quality of education based on the socioeconomic status of different communities. Um, There are a lot of cases where teachers who are not performing don't get fired. They get moved to the schools that have less means. Uh, I think teaching in general deserves to be a profession that's better paid than it is right now. What what is there that's more impactful to a country than preparing its youth to be able to be productive in the future? And I think we don't pay teachers enough. Uh, you know, and, and I so I, I think there are a lot of things that we've got to do if we want to make our educational system better. You know, I think we need to think about it um, in a way that promotes more innovation. We are have largely run our school systems the same way we have for the last 60 or 70 years when we were an agrarian society that's what the school calendar is based on that we don't three months off for summer i mean there's a lot of science that shows there's real regression when you take three months off um you know the the length of the school day is still run like people have to go home and help in the fields and you know i think that if you look at any ecosystem or any space that needs to change the best way to change it is to allow a lot of innovation, and uh, and to try lots of ideas, and take the things that work. Not all of them work, but take the things that work, uh, and incorporate those into the you know the broader array of schools that you have. And I think even you know there's this debate we have in Washington State, but I know it's, it's a debate in other states as well about whether charter schools should be allowed. That's crazy to me. I mean, that is, it's not a panacea charter schools, but it's also part of the innovation ecosystem where you can try different things and learn from them and incorporate them back into some of the other schools. So I think the only way out is to
0: try a lot of things and be flexible and willing to change. Talk a bit about um, where, what stage the cloud is in. and how some of the announcements this week address that I mean people like to say early innings Um, I I don't know how early it still is but I still hear that people are moving from test dev to actually moving their production work onto the cloud for the first time still
1: yeah well you know look our business is in the last financials we released a 27 billion dollar revenue run rate business growing 46 percent year-over-year so it's a pretty decent sized business and yet I would argue that we're still in the early stages of the meat of enterprise and public sector adoption in the U.S. Outside the U.S., I think we're 12 to 36 months behind, depending on the
0: country and the industry. So there's obviously— 12 to 36 months. 12 to 36 months. That's not as far behind as I would have expected to hear you say, say, a year or two ago. Yeah. Are they moving forward it, more yeah, rapidly?
1: Yeah. Lots of countries have made incredible progress over the last, um, you know, year or two. Um, but. You know, it's still, because the technology is actually so easy to use and so easy to experiment with and then actually um, build applications on top of, what you're seeing is um, companies often start with dev and test, but more and more what you see is virtually all the new applications being built today that don't have legacy, that don't have dependencies, are being built from the get-go on top of the cloud to enjoy all the benefits of the cloud right away. And in the early days, those were mostly web applications, and we still see a lot of web applications as new applications. But increasingly, what you see is that they're applications that use machine learning. They're applications that are taking advantage of devices on the edge and capturing all that information from those devices and doing analytics, and then you know reprogramming that device to take action or analytics capabilities. And so, um, you, you know. You can't have a business the size of ours without a large amount of production workloads, Uh, but I still think it's still relatively early days, and I think, you you know, this space, we're in the middle of this titanic shift from on-premises to the cloud, and if you look at the market segments that AWS addresses with infrastructure software, hardware, data center services, and then some of the services further up the
0: stack, globally, that's trillions of dollars, so we're in the early stages still. Microsoft is, is trying to come after you guys in the cloud particularly in the retail segment uh, with the idea that some retailers, Walmart being one, and there are others might say do we really want to go with Amazon's cloud and help supply profit to the rest of Amazon that's competing with us in, in the core business? When you talk to retail customers and potential retail customers, how do you address that issue? Well, you know, first the vast majority
1: of Amazon retailers, competitors, use AWS in some fashion. So we have a lot of customers on the retail side um, who use AWS.
0: But, so maybe you've heard that argument before.
1: Well, I've, I've had this conversation a fair bit. And look, every company gets to make their own decision. Um, but what, what we often share, um, you know, I think FDR said it well, where he said the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. If you step back and think about what really matters, how many companies have built businesses that have been successful over a long period of time? It's a vanishingly small amount. And that list is getting even smaller. And so when you think about what do I need to do to build a business that can sustain the test of time, to me, the most important thing by far is not to be focused on what competitive dynamics are, but to listen carefully to what your customers say matters and then to have the ability to unleash your builders to build that for customers and to be iterating constantly and experimenting constantly and evolving the customer experience that's the only way any of us that are building businesses right now have a chance to build a business that stands the test of time and there is no platform that gives builders the ability to evolve their customer experience and to experiment and to innovate on behalf of their customers like AWS. So that's what I share, and that's what I think people should be focused on.
0: How quickly are governments moving to adopt cloud? Uh, How quickly is the U.S. federal government moving relative to other countries? Governments
1: have been very large adopters of AWS and the cloud for a long time. We have about 4,000 government agencies worldwide that are using AWS, probably most famously, the intelligence community. Um, But we have a really big and broad um, government business. It's moving really fast. The U.S. has adopted um, uh, really quickly. But we see a lot of adoption in Europe and a lot of adoption in Australia and in Singapore. And virtually every government is interested for all the same reasons that everybody else in the enterprise and in startups are interested, which is, if you have the ability to um, build for your constituents in a way that, Um, innovates faster, improves their customer experience,
0: lowers their costs, than what you're doing today, you kind of owe it to your constituents to do so. Are you happy with uh, the way the Department of Defense is is structuring um, the potential cloud contracts? Are you open to to changes in that, the idea that it could largely go to one provider versus being split up?
1: You know, I think that they have done a very careful and thoughtful job in specing out what that RFP is, and from the very start, they have said it's an open competition, and I believe them that it's an open competition. I think most big technology companies, um, you know, save a couple are interested in trying to help our country um, uh, defend itself, um, and uh, you know, I, I think that frankly, their philosophy on having most of the award go to a provider is very consistent with what we see the vast majority of enterprises doing as well, and what we think makes sense. You know, when companies think about moving to the cloud, in the initial stages they'll think a little bit about, should we actually split this up rather evenly across a couple or a few of them? Very, very few choose to go that route, because if you do, you have to standardize on the lowest common denominator, and AWS is, you know, in our case, we, we have a lot more capability than anybody else, and a much larger ecosystem, more maturity, so, you don't really want to have to tie people's hands behind their back. And then um, it turns out that if you're moving from on-premises to the cloud, that's a big shift, and to make development teams have to be fluent in multiple cloud platforms makes developers miserable and their productivity low. And then all these cloud providers have volume discounts, and so you delever your buying power if you split it across a few. So the vast majority of enterprises predominantly choose a provider. Some will have a small number of workloads with another just to make sure they know they can go there or something goes sideways with their, you know, their main provider. But the vast majority predominantly choose one. And the fact that the, defense, the Department of Defense is doing that, I think actually is a best practice. So I think they've been very responsible uh, about it. And I think it's a, a very competitive um, uh,
0: endeavor for who ends up being able to serve them. And you know, we'd love to have the opportunity. All right. Well, Andy, thanks for sitting down. It's always great to come out here and, and chat with you about the future at, at reInvent. I appreciate your being here, John. Thanks for the time. Thanks again to Andy Jassy. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox series on LinkedIn. That's a brand new and great way to keep up with the trends I'm seeing both on this Fort Knox show and in my other work on CNBC. That's also the absolute best way to keep in touch with me. Leave a comment on the series. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube dot com slash YouTube. Matter of fact, you can go to YouTube now and see video of this conversation. Or you can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV and find Fort Knox in the featured area. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.